from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Ann Pearson on June 26, 2014. Ann teaches a wide variety of courses in the Department of Religious Studies at McMaster University. Her area of specialty is Hinduism, but she also teaches other South Asian religions, as well as courses on gender, nonviolence, and ecology as they relate to religion. She has been an instructor at the Baha'i Wilmette Institute for about 10 years. I started the interview by asking Anne where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. My father was a diplomat, and so I grew up living in Mexico, in India, in Russia, France. And when we were not abroad, we were uh, living in Ottawa. So what was it like? It was an amazing experience and prepared me to be a world citizen. So there was no longing to be in one spot growing up? (laughs) (laughs) There were five of us in the family, plus my parents. And my siblings, some of my siblings did find it more difficult than I did. But by and large, for some reason, I... I love encountering new cultures and new people and making new friends. I never had difficulty. So uh, on the whole, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't difficult, except once when we moved from India, and I was 15 then, back to Canada, and I just did not want to leave. That was the hardest. And why was that? Why didn't you want to leave India? Well, because it's that teenage sort of smack in the middle of your teenage years and where friends are extremely important. Uh, And in my case, I knew that I might not ever see my friends again. My best friend was Turkish. I had uh, American friends, Indian friends, um, uh, and from other parts of the world too, Iranian friends actually. And, uh, you know, I just knew that chances were I wouldn't see them again, not... uh, in the near future anyway. So I found that very, very hard. Also coming back to Canada, I did not know what all the teenagers were listening to in terms of music and other cultural indicators. Uh, So I didn't fit in at all. And how long were you in India? Three years, Mm -hmm. that time. And subsequently I've lived in India over five years. Okay. So uh, what was religious life like growing up? My father was not particularly religious, but my mother was an Anglican, uh, I think you call it in the States, a congregationalist. She wasn't pushy about it. She took us to church. But, you know, living in different countries, that meant uh, whatever church was available. So uh, we went to different kinds of churches. But we also, for example, in India, she would uh, take us to Hindu temples and uh, we went to Buddhist sites occasionally, and so she was open-minded about religion. What was your perspective on religion growing up? Well, I remember very clearly when I was 14, so living in India, I was 14, 
I was very interested in religious questions, questions of meaning of life. I mean, all teenagers are, but uh, I seem to have had a particularly strong interest in the big questions. And I was very sensitive, again, many teenagers are, to inconsistencies. So your parents would tell you one thing and they would do another. So I it was also going to a church in, in New Delhi and... You know, I heard the minister say one thing, and then I knew he did something else. Or I would hear other people at church say one thing and do something else. And I got very mm, unhappy about that. And uh, so I started to read the New Testament, and I was inspired by it. But I, I found that most Christians were not living by the precepts that I found in the New Testament. So that began my search, really in a sort of more serious way that escalated by the time I was 18. And I started to travel by myself, first of all in Europe. And um, I began to explore Buddhism, and I spent time in a, Buddhist mon- a Tibetan Buddhist monastery in Scotland, of all places. <laughs> so these were Tibetan monks who had been forced to leave Tibet, of course, and go into India, but then they made a further transition to the UK, I guess, because they had been given a special permission to to do that. So I had a sort of taste of what Buddhist monastic life was like, and I, I liked what I saw as the apparent ration, rationality of Buddhism along with its mystical side. So you, you finished high school in Canada? I did, yeah. And then... <laughs> Tell me about the decision to go abroad after you finished high school. Yes. uh, Well, having uh, grown up traveling, I was uh, not anxious to go immediately to college. I wanted to take some time off and work and travel again. So I did that. I I worked for about six months and made enough money to go to Europe for about five months. I also volunteered in Jean Vanier's I don't know if you're familiar with who he is. No, I'm Uh, not, so you can go ahead and explain it. Jean Vanier is a Canadian, a kind of Canadian saint in a way. He started up uh, homes for uh, disabled people, especially uh, mentally challenged people uh, in different parts of the world. And um, so I, I did a bit of volunteer work for him when I was in Europe and as well as staying in this Buddhist monastery. And I just kept reading and reading. And finally, came back to Canada. I went to my first year of college. And it was there that I discovered the Baha'i faith for the first time. And how did that happen? Well, um, I love jewelry. And I love wearing jewelry. And I always notice other people's jewelry. And there was a person sitting in, in two of my classes uh, that... Uh, a young man, and he had a ring on his finger with with a Baha'i symbol on it. Of course, I didn't know it was a Baha'i symbol, but it was a Baha'i ring symbol. And so I turned to him and I said, what, what does that mean? And so he began to explain this, the symbolism of the relationship between the manifestations or prophets of God and humanity and... Uh, and God. And I was so intrigued. He, of course, immediately invited me to come and hear more about the Baha'i faith. And uh, so I did start to learn more about the faith at that point. What was it that attracted you to to learn more about the Baha'i faith? For one thing, the meetings 
were at the college or the university um, on Friday nights. And the competition on Friday nights <laughs> was the pub. You know, I was already a couple of years older than fellow students, and I didn't wasn't interested in that scene. And so what else was going on on a Friday night? Well, the Baha'is were meeting, and they were um, incredibly hospitable and really wanted to uh, explore those big questions that had been, you know, forefront of my mind for so many years. And so I found that the Baha'is had answers that really made sense consistently. One question after another kept getting answered in a way that was unexpected to me. So, for example, at the time, I thought of myself as a kind of a Buddhist. But I also realized that Buddhists tended to be very much focused on their own enlightenment, their own search. And I knew, having lived in different parts of the world, that the world was in a bit of a mess, and there were a lot of social problems. And I felt that that religion needed to also be able to address those social problems. So, of course, one of the first things that I heard about the Baha'i faith was that all people are part of one family. Well, certainly I already believed that. And then I learned that there was only one God, one ultimate reality. Well, I also believed that already. And then uh, I learned that religion is about addressing the issues of the day, and that religion is progressive, and it is organic in its progression. So as humanity develops uh, and changes, and its needs, its collective needs change, then religion needs to be able to address those. So these kind of answers really made sense. It was very, very important to me that if I was going to embrace a religious path, it had to be very respectful of previous religions. So I was still very you know, fond of Christianity. I still very much loved the figure of Jesus Christ. Uh, but I also was very fond of the Buddha. So here was a religion that said, you know, not only are uh, past religions all part of the, the revelation uh, of the sort of chapters in a, the book of God, but those include Eastern religions. And I had met many very spiritually developed Buddhists and Hindus. And so I knew there had to be some truth in their religion. So it was very important to me that the Baha'i faith embrace those religions as part of our collective religious heritage. And so what was it that made you decide to like commit yourself to mm -hmm. being a Baha'i. Yeah. Well, the another part, but I'll, I'll answer your question in a second, sure. but I also wanted to make this point, that the Baha'i faith walks a spiritual path with practical feet. So, whereas Buddhism tended to focus on inner development, uh, inner spiritual development, and had less to say about the collective development of humanity and the addressing of, of current problems, the Baha'i faith really had a whole architecture of beliefs and principles which worked on together collectively could help address the problems, um, even including, for example, uh, a world court 
You know, there's nothing in Buddhist writings about a world court, but there are in Baha'i scriptures, or there is. Uh, so what changed for me was I already believed, you know, in the equality of women and men. I already believed uh, that education was a human right. So these things, these social teachings of the Baha'i faith were not new to me. I already believed them. For me, being a sort of a kind of a Buddhist at the time, I had difficulty with God talk. <laughs> I even wasn't sure how to pray privately. Uh, I had prayed in church, but I wasn't sure how do you pray privately. And so I began to read the Baha'i writings, and especially the Baha'i prayers. And as I read them in this beautiful, elevated language, it began. they began to sing to my heart. So I had to put aside my sort of intellectual approach to the Baha'i faith for a, a time and really listen to my heart. And it was that connection and also a passage in the Baha'i writings where Baha'u'llah, the founder, says, if thou lovest me not, my love can in no wise reach thee. So I knew that I couldn't expect God to provide the proof because that's kind of what I was looking for intellectually. I wanted proof. How do I know this is the real thing? And when I read that passage, I realized I need to take that step. I need to reach out to God and, and really sincerely, deeply pray and ask for what the answer was about its truth. And the response I got was so strong and so undeniable that I knew that I had to embrace this faith. That I knew it was true. So you became a Baha'i. Mm-hmm. Then what, what happened? <laughs> okay, well, I was 19, and so, you know, still fairly young. I had a sense that just because you embrace a faith uh, doesn't mean you're not going to be challenged. And so almost immediately, within a few days after the high, it really felt like a natural high when I became a Baha'i. Uh, but after a few days, I began to wonder. Uh, I had doubts. Should I have done it now? It wasn't really doubts about the veracity of the faith. I knew I knew it was true, but I didn't know if I was ready. I thought, oh, the standards are so high, the moral standards and and the emphasis that's placed on individual initiative. I thought, I, I don't think I'm ready, um, and maybe I did this too early. And so I started to have doubts. And then I was reassured by some fellow Baha'is. You know, becoming a Baha'i is just taking the first step on a long journey. And that, you know, spiritual development is always a journey. And it's you're always going to be tested. You can't just say, hey, I believe, without God saying, okay, <laughs> let's see if you do. Uh, so, you know, I had my share of tests in those early days. But I, I felt that I was after I struggled uh, and read and learned more and very importantly, uh, met more and more Baha'is. And I saw the, a consistency between word and deed that was of an extraordinary level that I had seen less of in other religions. So all that helped me to get over some of the early bumps. So meanwhile, um, I changed universities, I changed cities, 
And I, start, I decided that I wanted to pursue a degree in religious studies. But um, I chose Hinduism <laughs> because uh, I'd always been intrigued by Hinduism. And being a Baha'i meant that I could, you know, go ahead and study Hinduism knowing that it was, in a way, part of my own spiritual heritage as a human being. So I did that. Um, I got a degree in, in religious studies, and then then I took another year off, and I went to India and other parts of Southeast Asia and Australia, and um, I did a lot more learning and and a lot more me- meeting of different peoples of the world and decided I wanted to continue my studies. So I went on and did an, a master's degree and then finally a PhD in Hinduism. So how would you say that your perspective in studying Hinduism might be unique being a Baha'i than maybe other scholars studying Hinduism? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that being a Baha'i, right from the beginning of my, my college studies, has been crucial to giving me an open embrace of the faith. You know, when I mentioned progressive revelation before, the, the Baha'i understanding is that religions over time become corrupted. They become corrupted by human misinterpretation. And this is especially the case in religions that are very ancient, like Buddhism and Hinduism. So none of the scriptures in Hinduism or Buddhism were written even at the time of the founders. In fact, we don't even know who founded Hinduism. It's at least 3,000 years old and probably older. So naturally, human interpretations and human practices tend to obscure what is likely to have been the original intent of the uh, founder of the religion. And it doesn't matter which religion, any religion. And so being a Baha'i, I believe that Baha'u'llah is the prophet of God for this age, the manifestation of God for this age, that his guidance is what God wishes humanity to know for this time. And of course, there have been a lot of corrections in the Baha'i writings. For example, Hindus believe in reincarnation, Baha'is do not. So Baha'u'llah said, the ideas of of rebirth, which you find in Hinduism and Buddhism, were probably based in the idea of a spiritual rebirth at death. So that the idea of the soul, such an incredibly difficult concept, really, to uh, grasp. The idea of a soul, which emerges quite clearly in Hindu religious literature around the 7th century BCE uh, in a group of texts called the Upanishads. So we see for the first time this description of uh, Atman, which means... It's often translated as soul. But you also see in these texts, you know, a lot of disagreement about, well, what is this thing? Does it have any weight? Does it have any materiality? Where is it located? What happens after the body dies? So these texts assert that the soul continues. But then there's a lot of disagreement about what happens. So the idea of reincarnation kind of emerges as a way to make sense of the fact that you don't know everything by the time you die. So, wait a minute, if you don't know everything by the time you die, then when do you get a chance to learn it? If the afterlife is viewed as static, 
that you don't continue to develop, but rather you remain there sort of in the same level as when you died, then that doesn't give a chance for everyone and to, to know sort of the final enlightening knowledge. And Hinduism asserts, again, these texts of Upanishads assert that the goal of life is liberation from ignorance. So spiritual liberation from spiritual ignorance. So these ideas then come into play. Now, as a scholar of Hinduism, I don't go around and say, no, no, the Hindus are completely wrong about this. What I try and do is understand the context in which these ideas come into being. And, uh, but at, personally, as a Baha'i, I have this added um, direction, really, in, in knowing, first of all, that Hinduism, for example, or Buddhism, are genuine religions, genuinely inspired by God. But on the other hand, that a lot of misunderstanding, human misunderstanding, evolved, uh, became attached to these religions. So I have that dual perspective, a, a profound respect, but at the same time, uh, a sort of way to make uh, a set of principles uh, and teachings to help me work through some of the contradictions that you find that seem to divide religions. Now, does the Baha'i faith consider Hinduism as a monotheistic religion? There's actually not a lot said about about Hinduism in the Baha'i writings. Uh, what is said is that Krishna was a divine educator. So Krishna, the figure of Krishna, is regarded as on par with the other great divine educators sent by God to humanity to help us to understand God's will. Beyond that, the Baha'i uh, scriptures don't say much about Hinduism. So it's really left up to scholars of Hinduism who are Baha'i to then try to, uh, to begin to align the, the two religions, to see where the overlap of truths are. Of course, that's from a Baha'i perspective. Again, as a scholar, an academic scholar of Hinduism, and when I teach, uh, certainly, about Hinduism, to students, I try and teach it in a way that Hindus recognize their own faith. Now, do most scholars consider Hinduism a polytheistic religion? That used to be the case many, many, many decades, maybe even to the beginning of the 20th century. But in the end of the 19th century, a, a term came into English usage called henotheism, which is to, to refer to Hinduism, ancient Hinduism which is to worship God in a serial monogamy form, if, if I may put it that way. That is, to, to worship God as one being, but then to see God in assuming different forms, physical forms and images. So uh, that helped other scholars to think about Hinduism as maybe not so much polytheistic, but as understanding that there is a unity and is very profound in in the hindu scriptures you can you can read it right in the earliest scriptures the vedas uh in one passage which says in particular you know god is one and the sages call it by many names so this this very profound recognition of unity of the universe of reality against which a phenomenal diversity is visible is there. So Baha'is would say, you know, the, the 
Hindus have a very, very rich, rich understanding of the divine, uh, because there are passages in the Baha'i writings, too, which talks about God being manifest in creation, that you can know God through his creation. So this huge division between God and humanity can be broached a little bit, even while Baha'is assert that the essence of God is unknowable and ever will be. And Hindus, there are some passages in Hindu texts which also say that, that the essence of Brahman, as it's called, is unknowable. Um, but there are many other passages which, which would deny that. So really, in Hinduism, there's a lot of inconsistency. Uh, so it's both polytheistic it's he- and henotheistic and monistic, which is a way of understanding uh, ultimate reality as one substance out of which there are uh, everything is made. Also animistic, pantheistic. All of these designations can actually apply to Hinduism. And do Hindus in general recognize Krishna as sort of the central figure of Hinduism or not? Yeah, that's a good question too. No, I mean, yes and no. Uh, many, many Hindus do recognize Krishna as the term that's used in Sanskrit is avatara. So in, mm. in Hindi, it's avatar. So everybody knows the word avatar now since James Cameron's film came out. Right. And even before that, in terms of, uh, you know, video games and assuming an avatar. Well, it is a Sanskrit word, avatara. It means descent. So descent of what? Descent of qualities of God. So here's a good example of where Baha'is would understand the word avatara that you find in Hindu scriptures to mean the descent of the, the qualities of God manifested in a human being. In other words, a manifestation of God or a prophet uh, or a messenger of God. But Hindus uh, would under- have come to understand the idea of avatara as incarnation of God. So God's essence incarnated in a human person. And they have uh, a list uh, traditionally of nine such incarnations uh, so, do all Hindus, though, believe in uh, these nine incarnations? No. Do all Hindus believe in God as Vishnu? So, what is this Vishnu? Vishnu is understood as the human face of God, who then has these avatars. So, Krishna is understood as, a, as an avatar of Vishnu, but... There are other Hindus for whom the primary face of God or form of God is not Vishnu, but the god Shiva, or in some cases, the goddess Devi or Durga. So not all Hindus, in other words, necessarily worship Krishna, but many do. A slight majority, I would say. So do Hindu scriptures have any prophecy about the future after Hinduism? Yes. Let's call it the branch of Hinduism in which that unknowable God is referred to in personal terms, in monotheistic terms, as Vishnu. So in the theology, the Hindu theology that is 
called Vaishnavism. That is the form of religion that sees Vishnu as the name of God. In that particular branch, you have this avatara doctrine, as I said before, and following Rama, so Krishna comes before the figure of Rama, so there's supposed to have been another avatara called Rama, and after uh, him is the Buddha, in fact. So the Buddha was incorporated into Hinduism as uh, part of, of Hindu theology. And after the Buddha is another figure mentioned in the text called Kalki or Kalkin. And this is the avatara to come. So Baha'is believe that this Kalkin is, in fact, Baha'u'llah. And do they have any specifics about this one to come? There is a lot of description, of, uh, but it, it's, it's quite inconsistent. Uh, mm-hmm. But let me go back a little bit and, and refer to the Bhagavad Gita, which is a text that some of your listeners may be familiar with. The Bhagavad Gita is one of the best-known Hindu scriptures, and it is uh, a scripture in which Krishna reveals himself for the first time in, in uh, that large corpus of Hindu scripture, uh, reveals himself to be this avatara. You see this word for the first time in Hinduism, avatara of Vishnu. In that description of uh, Krishna as the avatar, he says, whenever dharma becomes corrupted, so what is dharma? Dharma is probably the closest word you're going to get to religion that you'll find in Hinduism. It it means moral law, it means cosmic law, it means duty, it means righteousness, but it generally can also just refer to religion. So Krishna says in this text, whenever dharma, or if you like religion, whenever religion begins to be corrupted, then I reveal myself. And this is where you find this use of the term avatara. Then I send down. So it's, it's, it's Krishna speaking in the voice of Vishnu. I send down into the world to restore dharma or to restore religion. So it's very clear what the role of the avatara is. And also this concept that religion does become corrupted over time. And that God intervenes in human history to clear off all those corrupted understandings to reassert the fundamental spiritual truths which all religions utter and then to provide new guidance so in the Bhagavad Gita itself does not spell out that there's going to be another one after Krishna but the whole doctrine suggests that yes God intervenes time and time again so it's much later literature, it's medieval literature, actually, that begins to describe this Kalki figure riding on a white horse, and, you know, he comes to bring the light to the darkness, and there are many, uh, many statements made about him, some, I would say, somewhat fanciful. <laughs> right, so I get the impression that Hinduism really is almost like a historical story that's involving many, many people. It's pr- 
probably why I kept studying it because I kept trying to figure it out and finally realized you can't figure it all out uh, mm-hmm. because it is so ancient and it's so diverse. It doesn't have this single book and it, a holy book and it doesn't, as I say, it doesn't have a single historical founder. Uh, tended to downplay the the importance of recording history. It's most most of its what we would call history is really mythology, but yet it's full of very very profound insights uh, that you know have so much in common with all the great world's religions. Anne, are you a teacher? Yes, I I teach at at a university here in Hamilton. Do you have you written about Hinduism? Yeah, I have published a book on uh, Hindu fasting rituals uh, that I was quite interested in for a long period of time because asceticism, the practice of of, of depriving yourself of food and drink and and other comforts, bodily comforts, is strong in the Hindu religious tradition. So I was very intrigued by fasting rituals that are that primarily women observe. I've also written a, num- a number of articles on different aspects of, of Hinduism. You went first encountered, I guess, Buddhism before Hinduism. I guess encountered Hinduism when you were living in India in high school. Right. Yeah. So first Hinduism, but it was um, as I got older and started to read in the different world religions, it was Buddhism that most intrigued me, most appealed to me. But then you ended up being a scholar in Hinduism. Right. Right. How did that happen? I guess because I I was able to always create a a distance. Um, Hindus uh, make it pretty clear, most of them, that, that they don't seek converts. So if you are unfortunate enough not to have been born a Hindu, they would say, well, better luck next time. <laughs> so there was a an academic and intellectual and emotional distance uh, that was helpful as a student of Hinduism, you know, so I could approach it on a more intellectual level, which I think is important for your as a scholar to be able to do that Mm -hmm. and you felt like you couldn't do that with buddhism less so less so Mm. and i guess you know since india is a dominantly hindu country and i just had such fond feelings for india and knew many uh hindu indians that i just uh really liked I mean, having just said that there was a more of an intellectual distance, there was also a fondness, I guess, for Hinduism. It's also more of an intellectual puzzle, or at least it was to me uh, at the time, than, than Buddhism. So Buddhism I kind of wanted to keep, in the early days at least, sort of keep private for my own study and investigation. And what's your relationship with Buddhism now, as a scholar? and? Well, um so most of my research, of course, was on Buddhism, but then as I became a teacher, I've had to teach many courses that have involved segments or components on, on Buddhism. So I, I teach a lot of thematic courses, such as gender and religion and nonviolence in religion and ecology in religion or death and dying in religion. So when I teach these thematic courses, 
I always include a Buddha segment. So uh, over the years, I've done a lot more reading on Buddhist scriptures and secondary literature on uh, on these themes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, you know, it continues to intrigue me. And such thematic courses like that, I guess you would also have to include Islam. Oh yes, oh yes, uh, <laughs> Islam and Judaism and uh, Christianity. That's right, and Chinese religion sometimes as well, Taoism, uh, Confucianism. And when you mentioned the themes that you talked about, for instance, gender equality mm-hmm. and what we're experiencing in the Islamic world, uh, which seems to not embrace gender equality so much, what is the relationship that you've discovered as a scholar in in this issue of, or the topic of gender equality with Islam? Yes, well, first of all, I want to defend Islam by saying that, the, you know, the Quran really does provide rights for women that were almost unheard of in previous scriptures and previous religions. Uh, so the apparent inequality, and often more than apparent, it's also real, uh, directed towards women in uh, Islamic countries is far more the product of culture than it is the religion itself. So where there might have been more equality in in beginning of each of these religions, the patriarchal norms came into play. The cultural, the dominant patriarchal norms come into play so quickly and uh, overlay whatever the liberating intents of the founders were towards women, uh, they're quickly gone. So, you know, Islam is not, I, I don't think is any worse. In fact, it's better in some ways. It, it offers more rights for women. At least in the scripture. Yes, yes, that's what I meant. Yeah, yes, in the scripture. Yeah. There seems to be so much conflict in the world. Religious extremism is really uh, a modern phenomenon. Not to say that there have not been zealots, if I may use that Jewish term, mm-hmm. that, that there have not been a tendencies towards fanaticism in any of the, the world's religions. There mm-hmm. has been, mm-hmm. with the exception of, of Hinduism, because Hinduism is not, does not have an orthodoxy about it. You can believe all kinds of things <laughs> and still be a Hindu. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't have a central creed. And mm-hmm. so because of that, it, it has allowed a great deal of latitude in personal preferences, in practice and in doctrine. Uh, But most religions that are doctrinally based, uh, where you have to believe a certain series of statements, these can lend themselves to extremist behavior. However, in the modern world, there's been a huge upsurge in religious extremism right across the board, including in Hinduism. So, and it's very much been tied to the phenomenon of nationalism. Mm. So as nation states have developed, have grown, as peoples as uh, who identify themselves ethnically also as a single group and who've experienced oppression before as they uh, find their liberation, they often will marry their sense of identity with 
not just with politics, but also with religion. So you, you have this. And so when you marry the two together and are able to foment, so you have political leaders using religion to foment dissent or to foment anger and, and then to have that anger directed in certain uh, ways. Uh, it's, it's been an explosive and extremely violent combination so you again, you see this phenomenon. You, you, there's been religious extremism among Jews in Israel. There's been religious extremism among uh, Christians in different parts of the world. There's been lots of. I mean, most of what gets in the news these days is Islamic or Muslim religious extremism. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, almost all religions have people within it, adherents who have been subject to these poles. And in the Baha'i faith, we're fortunate that there is no religious extremism. There hasn't been because uh, the Baha'i writings are very, very, very clear in their warnings about the dangers of religious fanaticism. And because the purpose of the Baha'i faith is unity and unity, bring an ingathering of all humanity, then if religion is ever used to foment division, Baha'u'llah says it's better to do without religion. And so with such categorical statements warning the Baha'is to avoid fanaticism, to avoid extremism, to concentrate on that which brings humanity together, we've been able to totally avoid this modern phenomenon. There seems to be so much strife and conflict in the world. And What's the Baha'i perspective of the future possibilities of the world? Mm. Yeah, certainly one of the things that most attracted me about the Baha'i faith was its uh, hopeful vision of the future. So the Baha'is are confident that God wills peace, that peace on earth is not just some airy-fairy dream, that it is going to be a reality and that in fact even right now it is beginning to unfold if you read papers or hear the news of course not so many people read papers anymore but if you watch the news or hear the news uh, on whatever media you're using uh, you get the impression that the world is going to hell in a handbasket that things are going from bad to worse but the reality is that a lot of an incredible amount of good things are happening and that the direction, the overall direction of humanity is towards cooperation. And in some ways it always has been because otherwise we would have annihilated ourselves long ago. Uh, so human tendency towards cooperation seems to be a nascent tendency. It's one might say from a biological perspective, uh, a necessary tendency for human survival. But from a spiritual perspective, it is also, I think the Baha'is would say, part of our inherent nature, that if we're created in the image of God, we are created with uh, that which will enable us to work together harmoniously. And of course, we have to more than ever now, because our problems are global. And so we must work not only within our families, within our communities, within our nations, but globally, we have to reach across these national boundaries. So this 
you know, nationalism we were talking about before that is combined with religious extremism. These are sort of the, the last whales of a dying way of life, you know, holding on to these these identities so strongly, these nationalist identities. This is who we are. We are whatever, in my case, Canadians, and Canadians trump every other nation. No, we have to think we are world citizens, and as a world community, we need to work cooperatively to solve our many and very dire problems, such as environmental problems. Uh, so it's not going to be easy. The Baha'is are not naive about that, but it is the ultimate will of God, and we all have to play a part in helping to bring that will of God into being, a will that is that sees humanity finally working in peace, where the toys of war have been finally, truly set aside. So are you saying the Baha'i perspective is is that the natural evolution of humankind is toward peace? Towards cooperation. Mm. And cooperation is a prerequisite for peace. Okay. Now, I mean, the Baha'is uh, are much more explicit about the means to achieve peace. Uh, again, it's not naive. The writings of Baha'u'llah are not at all naive. There's plenty of warnings in those writings about what will happen if we don't start disarming ourselves? What will happen if we don't establish more and more international laws that will help govern ourselves? Baha'u'llah recognizes uh, we have free will. That's God-given, so we can choose <laughs> to act in one way or another. But overall, the forces of good, the forces of cooperation are getting stronger and stronger. Uh, even while the forces of dissension continue to make a lot of noise and uh, can be very destructive. Still, overall, the forces of good and cooperation and consultation, because the Baha'i Faith says, you know, there can be no peace without unity. There can be no unity without consultation. Uh, with, sorry, without justice. And there can be no justice without consultation. So the peoples of the world, I mean, this is one of the markers of our growing maturity as a human species and population is the uh, cry for having a voice, the, the cry for participatory democracy, you know, which we've seen breaking out all over the world. Look, a hundred years ago, how many nations were democratic? Very few. Uh, so... This desire for humans to be participants in the decisions that affect them now and in their future is a very powerful one, and Baha'is believe that that is part of the spirit of the age in which we live. So this is another indicator that we are moving towards cooperation because we need to talk with one another more and more and more. We need to have conversations. So, Anne, at this point... Is there something or some project that you've been thinking about that you would want to do that you haven't done quite yet? Yes, I want to write more about the connections between Hinduism and the Baha'i Faith. So I've already started uh, this project, uh, but I'm going to rev it up a little bit because there's been very little written, actually, on this topic. Well, what kind of connections are you thinking 
when you talk about the Baha'i faith saying, hey, you know, all religions really are one. Ultimately, they are one. They are diverse. They're, they have many differences, but ultimately they're one. There are a lot of people say, yeah, right. Well, you know, how do you reconcile reincarnation and a belief in a soul that doesn't reincarnate? How do you reconcile that? So it's, it's problems like that that I want to write about. Uh, you've established a relationship with something called the Wilmette Institute. Yes. I was wondering if you could just give a few brief words about what the Wilmette Institute is and what you contribute to it. Okay. Uh, well, I'm a faculty member uh, the Wilmette Insti- for the Wilmette Institute, and the Wilmette Institute is um, online distance learning. And uh, they offer a whole lot of courses, usually in six or seven week periods uh, with very good faculty. And I'm not necessarily including myself there at all, but some really fine people from around the world who are very knowledgeable on a whole range of uh, topics from the environment to the role of women in the world today to uh, nature of the soul, life after death. And so it's all kinds of topics uh, anyone can sign up for these courses. They do focus, tend to focus on the Baha'i writings, but not only. So I, t- I tend to be uh, focused on those courses that have to do with Eastern religions, so Buddhism and Hinduism, especially in interfaith dialogue. Well, Anne, thank you so much for sharing your story and your thoughts with us. You're very welcome. Thanks, Warren. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Anne Pearson who teaches a wide variety of courses in the Department of Religious Studies at McMaster University. Her area of specialty is Hinduism, but she also teaches other South Asian religions, as well as courses on gender, nonviolence, and ecology as they relate to religion. She has been an instructor at the Baha'i Wilmette Institute for about 10 years. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. of our vision, teachings of a holy man who spoke to us from prison, pupil of the eye, the creator's gift of sight, a gift for all humanity, seekers of the So many things we say that influence the mind. Those hidden little messages that are so hard to find. To show just one example, let's talk about a color. How black is shown as negative in one way or another. Of course, we know that's not the case when we refer to white. In fact, we use the color white to represent what's right.
but those of us that have a tone that's of a darker hue see blackness in a different light another point pupil of the eye the source of our vision teachings of a holy man spoke to us from prison pupil of the eye the creator's gift of sight a gift for all humanity seekers of the light sounds that enter through the ear melodies of old orchestrating different notes to touch and soothe the soul a symphony of music creating a harmony appreciating differences with its diversity a special walk that soulful talk flavored with pizzazz innovative music just listen to some jazz reggae hip hop samba And don't forget the blues. Ways to find expression. Years of paying dues. Pupil of the eye. The source of our vision. Teachings of a holy man. Spoke to us from prison. Pupil of the eye. The creator's gift of sight. Queen of class and dignity, Oprah, seen and heard. America's classical music, from Duke, Diz, and Bird. International leadership with strength, yet always calm. Promoting peace and unity, Mr. Kofi Annan. Uplifting words that touch your heart. From Maya Angelou, a pioneer in medicine, Dr. Charles Drew, Arthur Ashe and Jim Brown speaking out, they weren't afraid, Marva Collins and Bill Cosby helping you to make it great. Pupil of the eye, the source of our vision, teachings of a holy man. Spoke to us from prison Pupil of the eye The creator's gift of sight A gift for all humanity Seekers of the light Malcolm Martin Mandela Standards for the world To make this earth a better place for every boy and girl. Beige and brown and black and white, a variety of colors. Yet one human family, all sisters and brothers. Bearing burdens.
from the past, enslaved and sometimes sold, enduring untold horrors while survival was the goal. But darkness equals mystery, a search for the unknown. Seeking spirituality, we know we're not alone. The Earth's human garden we see before our eyes. Representing unity, if we only realize. But as we care for flowers, so none will be neglected. Humanity is much the same. We all must be respected. People of the eye, the source of our vision. Teachings of a holy man who spoke to us from the sun. People of the eye, the creator's gift of sight. A gift for all humanity. Seekers of the light. Yes, we're seekers of the light. Seekers of the light. Well, how will I? Unity is what we need for you and me. JLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. 
your Valley Free Radio station. Streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.